In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This morning I want to draw our attention to two of our readings, the one from Deuteronomy and the one from the Gospel of Gospel according to Mark, and some brief comments for you to consider on both of these readings. The first one from Deuteronomy is taking place when the people of Israel are asking Moses. Moses has been their leader, he has been their prophet, and they're asking what comes after you? What's going to come after you? We need to have some guarantee that another prophet will also be leading you once you leave us. That's really the question around them. And God, speaking through Moses, says, I'll deliver you another prophet. You'll have another prophet. And there are prophets that are going to come along, and you're going to need to determine for yourself which is a true prophet and which is a false prophet. And he says, you know, there will be prophets who come along who will be prophetic about other gods. Now, that's pretty easy to figure out that that's not God's prophet, don't you think? If somebody comes along to you one day and says to you, my God is Wall Street. Well, you know where they stand. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to worry too much about this being a prophet from God, I don't think. But if somebody comes proclaiming the Word of God and has misinterpreted the Word of God, that's a much more difficult thing. That's trying to discern what, what is about to happen. Now, let's be clear. Everybody, regardless of who they are, has a gospel. Everybody has a God. Everybody has something that wakes them up in the morning. I have a friend who says that an agnostic is a lazy atheist. And I thought, well, you know, that's pretty good. And then he finally said, you know, and I'm an atheist. And I confronted him. I said, well, there's no such thing as an atheist. Everybody has something that gets you up in the morning. There's something that gladdens your heart. Everybody has something that gladdens your heart. Everybody has something that drives you. Everybody has something that makes you move. Everybody has a gospel, some sort of good news. For us, part of the Christian tradition, we have to determine for ourselves when we're listening to a prophet, whether they're speaking the Word of God. Abraham Heschel is a Jewish scholar, and he wrote a book entitled The Prophets. And he said that there were really two kinds of prophets in that, in that world. Uh, the prophets are classical prophets. You can have Moses, Elijah, you come on down, Nathan the prophet, and so on and so forth. All of those are the classical, the ones we recognize. In our own lifetime, there's one that we would all recognize, I think. I think in the 20th century, we would all recognize that Martin Luther King Jr. was a prophet in America. Let me change that. Most of us would recognize that Martin Luther King Jr. was a prophet in America. All the white nationalists of this country would probably deny that. But the rest of us recognize him as being one of the classical prophets in our society. Now, the other thing that Abraham Heschel says in, the, in, the, in his book, The Prophets, is that everybody else is called to be also a prophet. And the definition prophet or a prophet would be a person who can see God's hand at work in our lives. And that's a calling that all of us have, to interpret God's work in our lives on a, daily, on a daily way, trying to figure out how God is speaking to us, where we see God and the actions around us. That's your task, that's my task, to be those small prophets, not the classical prophets, but to be the small prophets. Karl Barth was a theologian of the 20th century, a Swiss theologian of the 20th century, and he said that every believer, every person of the Christian faith should walk around with a newspaper and the Bible on their hands. On the one hand, the Bible. On the other hand, the newspaper. Because we needed to read the Bible, to hear the Word of God, and to interpret the Word of God in the events of our lives, in the world events, not just in our own personal lives. 
And when I was over a seminary in the Virginia Theological Seminary, one of his uh, students who became one of my professors taught a class entitled The Bible and the New York Times. And I took that class, and it was a great class. And the one thing that he always said to all the students was just remember the way that it is listed. It is the Bible and the New York Times. The Bible first and the New York Times second. Don't start with the New York Times and then read the Bible to see how it fits into that. But in order to be able to interpret how God is acting in our lives, the two things need to be held in tension. And that's your task, and that's my task. Now, I maintain that discipline just on an aside, but I have to tell you, I, I read the Bible every day, I read the New York Times, then I drink a strong dose of coffee and read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> By that, I'm telling you, for us, the little prophets, I think it's important to hear the other side. I think it's important to hear the other word. If you want to understand how God is moving, the best way to do it is to be able to, in a sense, to compare notes, to see how people are interpreting things, because you and I don't have a clear eye on how everything is happening, how we interpret God's action among ourselves. And it's always helpful to be able to do it with other people, A and B, as other people are writing about them. I find that some of the best theologians are found in the newspapers. Because I think they see the hand of God, however they interpret it, in the things that are going around in this world. And for you and for me, Reinhold Niebuhr, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, in a book entitled Beyond Tragedy, wrote that a prophet betrays himself by offerings false good news. And he also said the true prophet stands under the judgment of what he preaches. And I think that's pretty true. If a prophet doesn't apply what statement that person has made on behalf of God, doesn't apply for themselves, normally we're talking about a false prophet. Let's bounce over to the reading from Mark's Gospel. It's the very first chapter, it's the very beginning of it. Jesus has begun his adult ministry, and he's going to Capernaum. He's left Nazareth, and he goes to Capernaum. He goes with four disciples. There are not 12 yet. He's got to call the other yet. The other eight are coming along. There are only four disciples, and he goes to Capernaum. Happens to be a Saturday, so he goes to church. He goes to the synagogue. And while he gathers at the synagogue, something happens at the synagogue that the people who are gathered with him there says, they are astonished by Jesus. They are astonished by Jesus as a teacher. They are astonished by him and they say, this man has got some authority. Now, let me tell you this. I think the one thing we need to be clear is, is we don't need to confuse the authority of power with the power of authority. Think about that. Sometimes people have the authority of power by the office which they hold. But if you want to have the power of authority, that's a different kettle of fish. And what happens with Jesus is that somehow he unpacks something and they make them all realize that he's speaking at a different level and they recognize and they're astonished and they say, this man has got authority and he's speaking with the power of authority, not the authority of power. Some years ago, uh, this was a long time ago, I was, uh, preached a sermon here and this was during the Bill Clinton years. And it was during the Monica Lewinsky time. And so uh, towards the end of the, the sermon, I, 
I mentioned, you know, that from my perspective, because the president had lied so much about, remember the language, what is, this, what is this, is, something along those lines, I forget. But the moment he said that, I said, this man is lying. And I thought to myself, he's lost all the moral authority to lead this country. Now, he has the authority or the power of the office. Nobody denied that. But he has lost the power of authority. Now, there was somebody here from ABC at that service, so by the end of the service, uh, some folks uh, with the TV and stuff were outside, and they started asking me some questions. I responded to it, and every friend of mine who was a Democrat across this country called me up. And they all said, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. This is just a minor sin of a, a sexual peccadillo. And I said, I'm not talking about the sexual peccadillo here. I'm talking about moral authority. If you lie to the people, you lose the moral authority. Now, I don't have to draw this out too well for all of you, do I? <laughs> We're exactly in the same kind of a pickle. The president may have the authority of the power invested in him as the president of the United States, but I want to tell you that he's lost the power of the authority because of all of the line that we hear on a daily basis, over and over and over. And I worry, I worry about the United States, I worry about all of us, because there is no moral authority guiding us. Lots of people with the authority of power, very few people with the power of authority. And that, I think, has to be reclaimed. What's interesting to me is that when Nathan the prophet confronts David for what he had done to Bathsheba's husband, the first thing that David says, he is chastened, he is chastised, he confesses, and he gets on with it. What I don't hear is any confession from anybody. It's just a lie after a lie after a lie. But let's move on in the story. Jesus is a teacher that has authority. All of us have had those teachers, haven't we? We have, have teachers who have had the, uh, the, the authority that is conferred on them by being a teacher, and then there are those who have that power because they are of, of authority. This past May, I had the opportunity to go back to my high school for our 50th uh, high school class reunion, and we were honoring one of our teachers, uh, Gary McKnight, who was the biology teacher that I had. He was also the track coach, which I, and I loved him for both of them. And what I loved about him was that he was able to draw things out of all of us. And he was somebody who had the, the, the moral authority to teach and to lead. And when someone asked me, they said, we were all of us representing each class that was being represented, they said, uh, why don't you, somebody needs to speak on behalf of our experience with Gary McKnight, and my class asked me to be the speaker, and I said to them, you know, the one thing that I can say is this, that all of us were willing to run through a brick wall for Gary McKnight. We also knew that he would never ask us to run through a brick, fall, through a brick wall, because that would be a stupid, stupid thing to do and he would recognize that he would have lost his moral authority. You and I both know that the best teachers are the ones who can draw something out of the student. Carl Jung, I think, makes an interesting observation about teaching. This is what he wrote. He says it takes place only when the teacher points out something the pupil already knows about themselves. That is, the teacher throws light on an insight this pupil is already struggling toward has almost arrived at, has discovered without articulating. 
It's like being able to put words in what you're thinking, and the task of a great teacher is to draw those words out of you. I don't know what happened that day in the, temp, in, the, in, the temp, in the synagogue that made those people think that Jesus had authority. I don't know what he was drawing out of them, but they recognized him that he had authority. And then we move on to the other part of this particular story. The first person who speaks in this story is the man with the unclean spirit. And the person who speaks the first time in the story, the one with the unclean spirit, is the one who finally is able to say, this is the one from God. Nobody else in the story says that. A friend of mine one time said, how does the devil get into the church? And he responded by saying, we bring the devil into the church. And I said, what do you mean by that? And I said, we all come with some demons. We all come with some demons that bedevil all of us. And they could be the demon of fear. It can be the demon of grief. It can be the demon of loneliness. It can be the demon of anger. It can be the de demon of arrogance. It can be the demon of self-righteousness. You can go on down the line. All of us bring a demon into church. That's how the devil gets in into the church. Because we bring the devil. I bring it. You bring it. We have to bring it. That's why we gather at church. Now, what's important is this is to be able to recognize it. Now, I don't know what made that man with the unclean spirit recognize that the devil was in him, the demon was in him. When I was in Patterson, New Jersey, I used to go in the summertime, I would go to Union Theological Seminary. And at Union Theological Seminary, a theologian by the name of Walter Brueggemann would be teaching Old Testament theology, and we were all clergy in that class, so he was talking to us about preaching. And he said, you know, every sermon needs to have a moment of tension. Every good sermon should have a moment of tension. And he said, now you don't want to hold the tension for too long because people will shut down. They won't, won't, play, won't listen for very long. But he said, every sermon should have some tension. And he went to describe it very well. He said, every sermon should have a cheek-to-cheek -cheek moment. You know what a cheek-to-cheek -cheek moment is? When you sit down in the pews and it starts getting hot and you move from cheek-to-cheek -cheek like this. <laughs> Because there is some tension in the reading. There is some tension in the sermon that is inviting you to consider how you are living your life. What needs to change? And in order for things to change, you have to recognize that there is a demon that we all bring to church. And the only way that that demon can be driven out and the only way that that demon can be healed is if you recognize it, open your heart, and let Jesus touch it. And when you let Jesus touch it, the demon is driven away, has to leave. The sacred always defeats the profane. And we leave as healed people, ready to listen to the Word of God. But only, only if we can recognize the unclean spirit, acknowledge it, and let Jesus touch it. It's the only time that the healing can take place. So we're invited to be prophets. That's your task, that's my task. To see the hand of God at work among us. To be the small prophets, not the classical prophets. To pay attention to our teacher, Jesus, who invites us to open our hearts 
that we may all be healed by the power of God. Amen.